Our country is into safety, which is why we have a safety slogan for just about every potential emergency out there. Uh, These safety slogans are not haphazardly put together. They're the product of some serious research done in every single area where there could be some potential emergency. In fact, most of these safety manuals average about 70 pages in length to address things like tornadoes and earthquakes and floods, things like driving, doing CPR. Uh, All of this different research that they do goes into the development of the safety slogan, three or four words used for training purposes. I'm guessing you know some of these pretty well. If your clothes are on fire, you're supposed to stop, drop, and roll. Perhaps a little bit less familiar, if the earth is quaking all around you, we're supposed to duck, cover, and hold on. Did you know that one? Not so much. If, if you're crossing the street, you're supposed to look both ways, always while holding someone's hand, remember. If you approach a flood area in your car, you're supposed to turn around, don't drown. That one's a little bit weird. Do you know your ABCs of CPR? You're supposed to check airway, breathing, and circulation. Maybe more importantly, do you know your ABCs of catering portillos at your graduation party? You're supposed to have an appetite. You make big decisions about what food to get, and you call portillos stat. And if you're crossing a railroad, you're supposed to stop, look, and listen. These slogans are all helpful, they're memorable, they're important, they're easy to learn, they're easy to do in any situation that you're facing. But here's what I find interesting about them. We invest a lot of time and concern and energy to think through every possible emergency situation. And we come up with systems and strategies and slogans for safety even though many of us might not even ever have to utilize these things. We do all of that, all of this planning, while we neglect to confront a much more prevalent issue, an issue that most of us will face in our lives. You know, what do you do about a life without direction? Or what do you do with a wasted life? What do you do about a life that's marked by unbelief? Those are the kinds of questions that James addresses in our our passage today. We're exploring in this series, Faith That Makes a Difference. And we've titled this ninth message in the series, Rules of the Road. And this title seemed appropriate for several different reasons, because as we'll see in a moment, James uses a travel scenario to set up his topic. We're going to be going on a trip together today. It fits also because we often think in terms of a road when we think about life. We use that metaphor on a regular basis. Life is like a long, winding road, at times bumpy, at times smooth, and we want to try to drive rightly so that we can reach our goal. But the strongest reason that I chose this for my title was that I was able to steal one of these safety slogans from the Rules of the Road safety manual and use it as my outline. So I'll let you guess which one it is, but I will give you one hint. It's not turn around, don't drown, because I think that that one's lame. Turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to James chapter 4. We're going to zero in on verses 13 through 17. You can follow along on the screen for both the scripture and the outline, and you can jot some notes down in your weekly welcome. So track with me as I read James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. He writes, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this or that city, we're going to spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? 
You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Three rules of the road. Rule number one, stop. Stop. Now, commanding someone to stop isn't the most encouraging approach unless there's some potential disaster that's right around the corner and you're trying to encourage them to stop so that they don't fall into it. Now, as you reflect on the first verse of this passage that I just read a moment ago, what what do you see there that could potentially lead to disaster so that I would say, in summary, that James is saying, stop? There's probably not much, right? Take a look again at verse 13 of chapter 4. James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to carry on business, and we're going to make money. Not, Not much there, that's a problem, right? Well, actually, there are several problems here, and they come both in what is said and in what isn't said. And we're going to start with the stuff that's missing. What isn't said? You know, we've noted throughout this entire series that James often addresses his hearers as brothers and sisters. This communicates their family connectedness as Christians. So if you briefly scan each chapter of the book of James, you'll see that he puts brothers and sisters in there on several different occasions, and most often to begin a new section. That's his general approach, but he can also shift to some other form of address, and this kind of shift should grab our attention. So you might remember that last week we were reading along in the passage, and he shifted from brothers and sisters to you adulterous people, a very abrupt abrupt change of address. Here in verse 13, we notice it's the beginning of a new section again, but James leaves brothers and sisters out, and he trades it in for, now listen you, You know, the repetition of brothers and sisters, this warm kind of language, you can see James put his arms around brothers and and sisters. Now listen, you. It's a major abrupt shift. It's designed to get our attention. It's designed to stop us in our tracks. You know, we could probably substitute all sorts of other phrases like, hey, hey, come now, or hey, listen up, whoa, or wave our arms wildly to say, stop. James is trying to stop us in our tracks. You know, however commonplace we think the words are that follow, James wants to warn us. He wants to serve up a wake-up call. And he wants that wake-up call to be the fact that the plans of verse 13 have excluded something extremely important. Can you see what else is missing from verse 13? In verse 13, there is no mention of God in all of these plans. Instead, what we find is self-confident, presumptuous planning. Take a look at verse 13 again. James engages in a conversation with some merchants. These are business-savvy people, and and they're in the process of making some big plans. So you can kind of picture them standing in front of this big, huge map, and they've got a product, and they've got a plan, and they know what cities they're going to go to, and they're mapping the entire thing out. And in the back of their minds, there are dollar signs. They're dreaming about big profits. They've got a plan. In fact, it's already in the bank. Look at the things they've got control of. They've got control of the clock. Notice the timing of their plans. They're going to go today or tomorrow. They're going to spend a year there timing. They've got control of their target market. Notice the location 
of their planning. They're going to go to this or that city. They've got control of their business strategy, know the method of their plans. They're going to carry on business. They've got a great model, and they're going to work it. They've got control of their future income. Note the result of their plans. They've got such a great product and such a great plan that they are guaranteed to make money. And then lastly, they're in control, period. Not only do they have control of things, but they're in control of the whole thing. This entire process will unfold. Note the certainty of their plans. We will go. Certainty is emphasized over this sentence. Today or tomorrow, we will go. Insert the word will before every verb. We will go to this or that city. We will spend a year there. We will carry on business. We will make money. They've got it all figured out. Timing and location and method and results. And it's all wrapped up in this sense of certainty. James has several problems with this entire scheme, and we're going to get to those in just a few minutes. But at this point, it's probably enough to just simply ask if we're implicated in the portrait that James paints of this merchant. In other words, is this you? Are you the you in the first words of this verse? Is your life characterized by self-confident, controlled planning like these merchants? And if your immediate response to that is to say no because you can't imagine yourself getting an MBA or you can't imagine yourself running a business or being an entrepreneur, then you need to realize that James is just pulling this one example, a fairly obvious example of this kind of thing, out of the air, but he could include lots of other things. James is actually calling into question all of our planning because it is to greater and lesser degrees marked by a desire to control the future on the basis of my own desires. You know, when and where and how and what am I going to do all wrapped up in a sense of certainty as I control the future? Isn't that the mark of most of our planning? You know, think about our financial planning, concerned as it is with saving and investing and insuring for the future. Think of our retirement planning, you know, doesn't, doesn't this verse also call into question our obsession with an uninterruptible to-do list, the things i got to get done today, with our family planning and goal setting and business strategies and sports scholarships and even ministry leadership and plans in a church like ours? I left one really big one off the list. That's career planning. Most of us in our culture are shackled to these expectations, these broad expectations for how life should unfold one step after the other, the entire way down, all the way through the rest of your life. Most of us don't even know where this comes from, but we obey it to a T. I'm going to work hard so I can do well in school, so that I can get into a good college, so that I can do it all over again in college, so that I can get a useful degree so that I can go and I can get a good job and I'm going to do it all over again so that I can get married, so that I can have a good house and good cars, so I can support a nice family, so that they can repeat the whole pattern while I retire. And on and on it goes. These broad, sweeping expectations about how our lives are supposed to go. Is this in your plan? Is this you? Are you the you in the first words of this verse? Is your life characterized by this kind of self-confident planning? 
When I ask myself those questions, I have to say, yes, yes, it's me. Yes, I'm the one addressed. Yes, I often slip into a self-confident, must-control-everything kind of planning. In about eight weeks or so, my wife and I, Lord willing, are expecting our first baby. That is a scary thought. (laughs) I found out about this one morning in November at about 3.30 a.m., Uh, Most wives find out this kind of thing, it seems, in the wee hours of the morning, at least most of my friends' wives, but they let their husbands sleep until real morning rolled around. But not my wife. She woke me up, and she said that she had something to show me. And so not even knowing my name at 3.30 in the morning, I got up and I wandered in a stupor down the hall following her, and without my glasses on and being unable to read a pregnancy test, I had no idea what was going on in the bathroom. So she graciously explained everything, and suddenly I was shocked into consciousness, realizing all of what she was talking about. And the two of us stood there wondering, how could this have ever happened? (laughs) Eventually, I hugged her, and we prayed together, and then we made our way back to bed to go to sleep. Sort of. Because I laid there wide awake thinking of all of the implications of this news. One of the big things that came into my head was, where on earth are we going to live as a family? Because you see, several years ago, seven years ago, when Rachel and I got married, we moved into an apartment that was converted from a big Victorian mansion. It has these very thin walls. And we were told when we moved in that we couldn't have pets and we couldn't have children. And it made sense to me then. Stinks now, right? So Rachel and I have been considering all of our options. What are we going to do? Where are we going to live? And upon a lot of consideration, we decided that in order to save some money, in order to get some help with the baby, in order to have kind of a breather, a pause, to get some bearings on this stage of our lives, that we needed to move in with my (laughs) in-laws. Yeah, you like that. This conclusion confused me more than the pregnancy test, right? (laughs) My father-in-law is Pastor Jim, and we spend an ample amount of time together without sharing PJs, you know? (laughs) And so this decision was a really difficult one for us to make, one that we had to really think through a lot. And what really bothered me was that there there is in our culture, with this self-assured planning, this self-confident planning, a desire for upward mobility. And I started to realize this in me as I was thinking about this. I kept thinking, you don't go from an apartment to to a basement. You go from an apartment to a house. One person even made this explicit in the course of us talking about this decision. One person said, well, that's going in the wrong direction. And we literally did. We moved in the wrong direction, right into their basement a couple of days ago. What really bothers me about this whole thing, and even that person's comment, is the fact that I have bought the lie that to be a successful person, or in my case, a real man, it means that I've got to be in control. I've got to be independent. I've got to have a plan. I've got to be a person who says, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and in five years it's going to lead to this. And James calls the whole thing into question, that entire thought process. And he does so by getting us to stop, to wake up, to see this thing for what it is, and then by subtly asking us to be honest about whether or not this is our default operating system. Sometimes it's mine, more often than I want to admit. Is it yours? Rule number one, stop. Stop. Rule number two, 
look. We've already mentioned that one of the problems with self-confident planning is that it leaves God out of the picture. And James does have more to say about that theme in verses 15 through 17. But that's not the only problem with this kind of planning. Uh, Verse 14 highlights two other problems with our default planning mode. And we're going to address those first. So take a look at verse 14 of chapter 4. After commenting on this self-confident planning, James says, Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Some people have said that philosophers are part of a dying breed. You you, You could see a philosophy department filled up with students in the university, but philosophers have lost their prominence in the public sphere. And I tend to disagree with that assessment because as I flip through the TV channels, I, I happen to see a whole lot of philosophers talking about a whole lot of things. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you that our best philosophers in our culture are our comedians. Philosophers and comedians have one thing in common that sets them apart from all of the rest of us mere mortals. Philosophers and comedians are able to take time to step back and to really look at something and to understand it at a deep level. So you think of some of the comedy greats, recent greats, Cosby and Seinfeld and Romano. These guys are able, with a unique ability, to step back and to look at something and to make us laugh at ourselves. Cosby can make me laugh about Jell-O. Seinfeld about Halloween costumes. Romano about family life. I can step back and for a moment I get clarity on my life because I look at it from a different angle. They help me to really see what it is. And James stands in this ironic sort of comedian philosopher school because he helps us to stop and then to step back from normal life so that we can really look at it, really stare at it, take a long look. What does he see? James sees that we as people are completely, laughably absurd. If I switch my metaphor, James serves as kind of an eye doctor and he wants to help us to really look by adjusting some lenses to correct our vision, to correct our nearsightedness and our farsightedness. A person who is farsighted struggles to see things close up. They can see things far away but not so near. For the self-confident planner, everything that they look at is out in the distance, 5, 10, 15 years from now. But, in the, but the truth is, in the words of James, they do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Isn't that true? We, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes, let alone the next 20 years. We're, we're so absurd with our long-term planning. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen in the short term or the long term. We're we're finite and we don't know the future with any kind of certainty. And if you're not convinced that we have an obsession to know what's going to happen tomorrow, but an inability to know what's going to happen tomorrow, download a weather app for your phone. We can't figure out if it's going to rain in the next 15 minutes, let alone what's going to happen in the next 15 years. James slowly works away at our self-confidence with respect to our future plans. We have no access to the future, whether by fortune cookie or by crystal ball. So the issue with planning, catch this, isn't that we make plans. But the issue with planning is that in our planning, we exhibit a desire to control uncertainty. That's a gut reaction produced by fear 
rather than faith in God, we're farsighted. But we're also nearsighted. A nearsighted person struggles to see things that are far away. This is the person who's so concerned with his or her to-do list and the day-to-day that he or she is unable to put things into a larger, broader perspective. And James slows things down considerably at this point to ask a penetrating question. And his question gets at the heart of the problem. You know, we assume that we know everything there is to know about pursuing and having and maintaining the good life. But our self-confident planning actually shows that although we know how to plan a life, we don't understand what life is. We don't know what life is. We don't know the first thing about the life that we're living. Look at verse 14 again. James says, what is your life? You're a myth that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What is your life? Is this a question that gets a lot of your attention? Does this kind of question keep you up at night? Do you stop in a strategy meeting at work and just pause and say, what is life? No. People would look at you like you're crazy. Do you, in the course of a conversation with a friend over lunch, just ask, hey, what, what is your life really at essence? What is this thing? No, we don't do that. We, we don't have time for this kind of question. This kind of question doesn't occupy much of our attention. This is, the, this is the thing I was pointing out in my introduction a little while ago. We're concerned about a lot of things. We've got plans for a lot of things, but we might be missing one of the most important things, which is life itself. What is your life? You know, what if your life, planned to the hilt, isn't going in the right direction? What if your life, thought through with precision is actually being wasted on things that are not ultimately important. What if your life, while planned successfully, and maybe even successfully accomplishing everything that you set out to accomplish, is progressing blissfully unaware in unbelief? What if God is around your life, but he's not in your life? Does it matter? If so, why? If not, why not? What is your life? We don't have time for these kinds of questions, although I would encourage you to take time to reflect, to create some space to reflect on a question like this. We don't have time because we're anxiously trying to accomplish our plans. We don't have patience because this kind of question is too pesky. It's too intrusive. It's too demanding. But James wants us to pause to consider his question And his answer to it. He says, life is like a mist that vanishes quickly. It's short. It's transitory. It's fragile. Life is a gift from God that is sustained by God, which makes it all the more absurd that he's not included in most of our planning. According to the scriptures, life is for other people, which means it's not really my life. It's not really about me. It's not my own. Life is a gift from God to be lived for his purposes. If I had to summarize the difference between James and the merchants that he confronts in these verses, I'd say that it boils down to this. The merchants view life as a matter of self-reliance, and they take a stance of controlling everything, while James views life as a matter of dependence on God and a stance of receiving from God. Jesus shares a similar perspective. 
In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, he tells this parable. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? What is your life? It's like a mist. Now you see it. Now you don't. And so James offers us some corrective lenses the corrective lenses of life's uncertainty. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. And life's fragility, it's like a mist. And these help us to see clearly, to help us gain a new perspective so that we can really look at our lives in light of who God is and what he wants for us. Up to this point, James encourages us to stop. He encourages us to look in order that we'll recognize that our presumptuous planning for all of our lives is absurd. And if we've heard him, we'd be in a position now to listen to the alternative, which is humble, God-centered planning. Three rules of the road. Stop, look, and you know the last one is listen. Stop, look, and rule number three, listen. Take a look at verses 15 through 17, the final verses of this passage, James writes, instead, the alternative, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James gives us here, that, that is, the us is Uh, Christ followers that are addressed in these verses, he gives us two options. Uh, We can choose to say, I will go and do such and such, or we can choose to say, if it is the Lord's will, I will go and do such and such. Now, on the first pass, this may not seem all that different. Both of these statements still include me. Both still include planning. Both even may still include some of the same elements of the plan. They may include some of the same results of the plan. But the difference is actually huge. Because the difference comes in the frame of reference. And we can get at this difference by looking at the the two statements. The one made in verse 13 and the one made in verse 15. We've already looked at verse 13 in some detail. So at this point I just want to note that it's an assertion. If you glance back at verse 13, you'll notice that it's an assertion. An assertion assumes that the speaker is competent and capable of carrying out the content of whatever he's said. That starts and ends with the person speaking. He or she is completely autonomous, completely independent. In verses 13 and 14, James described this situation. But here, finally, in verse 16, he makes a judgment call on this kind of life. And it seems that he's echoing an Old Testament proverb. Uh, Look at Proverbs 27, verse 1. It says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. He probably has this in mind the entire time while he's writing this section. And so with this in mind, he says that the self-confident, presumptuous planner is arrogant, boastful, Proverbs 27, 1, scheming. And then James even goes out of his way to call this kind of life, this kind of planning, evil. 
This assertion takes us down the road to a dead end, which in this case is a detriment to our souls because it introduces distance, separation in our relationship with God. By way of contrast, verse 15 isn't an assertion. It's what's called a conditional statement. It follows the if-then pattern. It means that the first half of what's said in the sentence has to come to completion for the second half to come to completion. And so in this specific instance, the second half, our planning, is contingent. It is conditioned on the first half, the Lord's will. Nothing is going to happen apart from consulting God first. You start from the realization that human plans, catch this, human plans, human plans are contingent. They're conditioned on the Lord's plans, period. So James draws out the contrast and says, listen, instead of self-confidence and self-reliant autonomy and independence, the marks of a strong person in our culture, James says we should be marked by humility. Instead of the letter I standing in the first place, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do this and then this is going to lead to this, he says that the Lord's will should be in the first place. That's humble, God-centered planning. Simply put, it's the difference between trusting in me or trusting in God. Trusting in God's plans or trusting in my plans. Now, interestingly, according to James, the way that we make this shift of gears is by speaking. If arrogant speech is the thing that got me into trouble, then humble speech, we wouldn't be surprised, is the thing that delivers us. So specifically, he encourages us to regularly in our daily living, in our conversations, to say, if it is the Lord's will, and then fill in the blank. But the minute that I say that, there's this skeptic that arises in us, and it wonders if saying any of these little words are going to work like little sprinkling of dust or magic and make anything change. Or maybe even more importantly, we wonder whether or not this is just going to make hypocrites of us all. Can't you just see all of us walking around with our pagan, godless plans, forgetting about God, doing our own thing, but saying, if it's God's will, dot, dot, dot. My counter-response to that is that I really firmly believe that we're probably more prone to hubris or pride in our planning than we are to hypocrisy in our speaking. I think that referencing the Lord's will on a regular basis would probably serve to remind us that our life is not our own. It's a gift from God for God and his purposes. So I think it'd be a really good idea to write at the top of your to-do list, what does the Lord want today? Because it would serve as a reminder of the fact that this is God's world and I'm living in his world as a person who's devoted to him. What does God want for me today? I think it'd be really great to spend some time praying about any decision, any time, to say, God, I want to include you in it and I want to see what you want. What do you want today? To say, this is the Lord's will, or I want the Lord's will, or if it is the Lord's will, would serve as a strong reminder in the context of God's world that he wants to be a part of every single decision, small and large. This goes for big decisions in life. How many of us have made all of our summer plans without consulting God, without including him, without thinking, what does God want? What What does he want me to do this summer? Does he want me to invest in something other than the things that I've already made plans for? What does God want for my college plans or my dating life? What is God's will for my job selection or this car choice or this house choice or this moving decision? What does God want? If it's God's will, then I'm going to do this. But I'm not going to go launch off on my own. There is 
Literally, no part, catch this, there is no part of our lives, no decision, nothing that is left untouched by what the Lord wants. And here again, maybe chimes in the skeptic wondering then, how on earth do I know what he wants? James says so simply that I should just say, if it's the Lord's will, but how do I actually figure out what his will is? How do I discern what God's will is? And briefly, let me give you just two responses to that. The first one is that after studying these verses, I think it's pretty clear that God's will includes repenting of any kind of evil, self-reliant, proud streak in our lives. James says very clearly that one aspect of God's will is that we just say no to pride and self-reliance and self-controlled, self-conditioned, sort of confident planning. I'm doing it my own way. He calls it evil, which means God's not for it. So one clear aspect of God's will is that I want to get rid of anything in my life that's marked by pride and self-reliance. But secondly, God's word makes it extremely clear what God wants. In the big things and in the small things, he wants us to have faith. He wants us to trust him for everything, not ourselves. As his spirit works in us, he wants us to be marked by humility and honesty and purity and obedience. God wants our lives to be about other people, not about us. We know God wants that. God wants us to make disciples, to be engaged in ministry, to make disciples. So so when we're asking what God wants and we're reading the whole of the Bible along with the bits and pieces and relating all of it together and praying through it, we have resources for making plans humbly and in a God-centered way. So that faith in God trumps our pompous planning every day. James has one more final thing to say in closing in this final verse of the passage, verse 17. At first it seems a bit disconnected from everything that's come before it, but he says this, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. In this final summary statement, James challenges us to live a life in accordance to what we know is true. That God is God and I am not. Because when we don't do that, we live as functional atheists, living sinfully like there is no God, proud and self-reliance. It's not a life of faith. But God wants us to travel life's road by faith with humble, God-centered planning, doing his word as it's revealed, doing his will as it's revealed in his word. So three rules of the road. Stop, look at your life, and listen to God's word, God's will as it's revealed in God's word. I can't seem to say that. And be obedient to what he wants for us. That's faith that makes a difference.